Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Hi, we're here today with Raj Kumar. He's the founding president and editor-in-chief of DevEx, the media platform for the global development community. Well, we'll get into that and what that means, but DevEx is a social enterprise. It's dedicated to ensuring global development efforts do more good for more, for more people, and that's a good thing. Raj, well, he has his roots from India, uh, but he's born in the United States, and he recently wrote a very interesting book called The Business of Changing the World, how billionaires, tech disruptors, and social entrepreneurs are transforming the global aid industry. Welcome, Raj. Thanks, Mark. Really excited to be doing this. Yeah, we were talking before we started. My company was a longtime uh, member or user of DevX services. So I was reading a little while ago that the Washington Post compared DevX to a Bloomberg-style media platform for the aid industry. Two questions. The first is, Tell us a little bit, can you tell us a little bit more about what DevX does and then maybe tell us what the aid industry is? Yeah, absolutely. So DevX, we're a team of journalists and analysts and we are looking at how does the aid industry work, you know, the philanthropy, the charity, the foreign aid, um, you know, who's spending it, where is it going, what's working, what's not. Uh, we're a platform that you can log on to and you can say, you know, show me all the funding for HIV in the world and who's spending the money and where's it going, who's doing the work. Uh, we have journalists writing articles about what's working. We have journalists writing articles about what's not and holding people accountable for that. Uh, and we're a, a platform that's utilized by a little over a million professionals who do development work. Uh, so people who work at UNICEF or the World Bank or the Gates Foundation, those are our readers. Wow, that's fantastic. I know I get my daily dose of DevX every morning and uh, and a couple of, we, there's a couple of different uh, emails I get every morning. One of them is news and the other one is um, procurement, I think. But anyways, there's lots of great stuff. Yeah. Like, what, I mean, I have to say, when I see the word aid industry, it makes me a little bit sad, I have to say. Yeah, no, it, you know what? it makes me sad too. <laughs> explain what that means for people, I, I guess, in ways that we can understand. Yeah, and I mentioned this in my book that um, lots of people who actually work in this field don't want to call it the aid industry, myself included. Um, the reality is we don't really have other terminology today, and I'm hoping that we enter a new era in this field and we can actually call it something like the impact industry, you know, where it's not about aid anymore. And that is the revolution that I'm trying to describe in my book. But the, the fact of the matter is that we have an industry. It's a pretty big one. It's a $200 billion a year. And this is all the money going from rich countries to poor countries. The majority of it is through government. So in the U.S. it's USAID. In Canada it's CETA. In the UK, it's DFID, of course, you know, the World Bank and the UN agencies. So you've got billions and billions of dollars, about $140 billion that goes from governments in rich countries to projects, to people, to governments in poor countries. Um, then on top of that, you got all the philanthropy. And those are traditional charities. Those are big foundations like the Gates Foundation or the Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, you got lots of small NGOs and big NGOs and everything in between. So when you look at all of that, it operates like an industry. Right. Um, you know, it, it is. There's competition for money. There's competition for ideas. 
Um, you know, there's people who are fighting to see what's going to work best and people who are pushing, you know, for microfinance solutions and others pushing community development and others saying it's about press freedom and you got people working on all kinds of issues that really are trying to address some of the biggest challenges in the world. Uh, this is the industry that does that. You know, we, we are, we're in a moment now where it is totally normal to pick up the newspaper and read about manned missions to Mars. Right. It is totally normal to think there's going to be autonomous vehicles, you know, without a driver going down our streets any minute now. Right. And we are in a, in a crazy advanced moment in time in human history. And yet 10 percent of all people on Earth still live in extreme poverty. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, extreme poverty is really extreme. It's an arbitrary number, but it's really extreme. It's under a dollar ninety a day yeah. uh, is what they're is what they're living on. So this is the industry that is designed to serve the poorest people in the world, the biggest challenges in the world, conflict and extremism and climate. This is that industry. And the fact is, you know, we don't talk about it enough. And and that might be a a reason why we don't have better names for it, why it's still the aid industry, an old-fashioned name, because uh, we don't think of it enough as an industry. Speaking of picking up the paper, you can pick up the paper at least once a week. Uh, Not that I pick up the paper anymore. I look online. but um, And you see a billionaire philanthropist does this or does that or is going to solve this or that problem. How are, how are we supposed to frame that these days when there's not a lot of good things going on about all these rich billionaires? Now, just as a way to give you context to answer that question, we know about the income gap, how much the richest one percent own. You know, don't have. But getting a bit more granular, you know, there's about 143 tech billionaires in the world, half of them from Silicon mm-hmm. Valley, and I went and found out that uh, of them, only three gave more than four percent of their net worth. Uh, to philanthropic activities. That was Bill Gates, Michael Dell, and Sergey Brin. Two others gave more, uh, Carlos Slim and Warren Buffett, but they're not technically um, tech billionaires. What are we supposed to think when all these rich people are being entitled, getting away with terrible things, and now we're supposed to trust them to disrupt things for the better? Yeah, I mean, we're right to be really skeptical. And to have a really serious conversation about this, I think it deserves a lot more attention than it gets right now because yeah, we tend to celebrate uh, billionaire philanthropy when we hear an announcement that someone's going to give away money. You know, it tends to be something we say, hey, that's great news. You know, they're giving away money. And I'm calling for a much more serious, sober discussion about this because I think there's real potential, like good potential, to take all that wealth that's sitting at the top of our societies and turn it into good works for poor people. Today, we see real progress in lots of areas from some billionaire philanthropy. The Gates Foundation is obviously the most, the most famous one, but there are many others. Um, I talk about in the book, Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskowitz, who um, they're a young couple in their 30s. People really haven't heard of them, but they're worth like $14 billion. That's like the endowment of the, of the Ford Foundation, more or less. Right. They're already giving away more money every year than Rockefeller. Um, I think they're going to be bigger than Ford soon. And they don't have a big flashy building with their name on it. They don't have a foundation that they tout their own work. They're, you know, you don't, haven't heard of them because they're not out there kind of self-promoting. They basically are figuring out what are the most cost-effective, proved, evidence-based things you can give money to. A lot of it's in the health space. And then they just give their money to that. And they give huge amounts, hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, I think there's real potential to do good work like they're doing. Yeah. And I think we need to have a, a real conversation and a movement around this that gets gets that wealth going in the right direction so the things that we know work. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, 
how does, uh, I mean, what do you do in DevX to try and get that kind of message out? I mean, do you hold, is there a mechanism for holding people accountable for what they're doing or not doing or reporting on it rather? Because, you know, the, the popular press really just says all the good stuff, right? And they don't really deal with, look, you're, you're going to fix malaria, but is that the best thing in the world to fix? What, what, are, what do you do at DevX to, to try and, and uh, communicate what you're saying? I mean, we tend to get into the nitty gritty here. You know, our audience are people who work on these issues every day. So we don't, you know, we're not going to simplify it. Uh, certainly not oversimplify it. We'll, we'll talk about the real challenge. Something like malaria you brought up, you know, it's not a straightforward thing to eradicate malaria from the world. The, the current projections are maybe we have a shot of doing it, you know, in about 35 years or so from now. Um, it's going to be really tough. There's a lot of great progress on it, but it's going to be really tough. And so we will get in in our reporting into, you know, who's doing what, what's working, what's failing. Uh, I actually interviewed Bill Gates on this topic last year and got into a lot of the technical details around what he and the foundation are doing on it. Um, and so we're trying to sort of push people toward a serious discussion around the facts, around what works and what, what doesn't. And, uh, you know, I think that's just a piece of the puzzle. I think we need society writ large to be engaged on these issues. I think we need to see the aid industry as owned by the people. I mean, this right. is taxpayer money. Right. This is public money in a sense, right? If you're a billionaire donating it, you're donating tax-free. And in a sense, that makes it public money. That's right. So, you know, we, you know, we should, we all have a stake in it. And if you're in a poor country that's receiving a lot of this aid, you know, this is your country. So, you know, it's your life, and this is your community. So the aid industry is yours. It is everybody's and it needs to be seen as, as such. And then I think that allows us to have the kind of agency to have a real conversation around what do we want the aid industry to be? How do we want it to be structured? Right. Right. Do we want all the decisions made in Washington, D.C. and London? <laughs> you know, do we want all the, um, all the talent flying in from overseas? Um, do we want to, you know, prop up the, the wrong governments, you know, with right. aid money? What, what do we really want to do here? Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of good the aid industry has done. There really is. Um, and you can see it in a lot of health statistics and education statistics. But there's also a lot that's left to be done. And right. This is not an aid industry that mm. is fit for purpose. When yeah. you think of the challenges of the planet, of climate, of poverty, we don't have the aid industry we need for this new era. And I'm calling for us to build that. Let's, well, let's do it. This is our chance to do that. Let's let I want to come back to uh, in a minute uh, to some of the things that you talk about in your book um, and disruption. But let's just take a little bit of a break first and listen to some music. We're talking with Raj Kumar. He's president and editor in chief of DevX. It's a media platform for the global development community. You can get a hold of Raj at, on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX or you can just check out DevX.com. Uh, we're going to listen to get a little taste of Bruno Mars, billionaire, because many of us want to be billionaires and we don't want to do a lot of good things with the money. Yeah, a different city every night. Oh, I, I swear the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. 
Yeah, I would have a show like Oprah. I would be the hoster every day Christmas. Give Trappy a wish list. I'd probably pull an Angelina and Brad Pitt and adopt a bunch of babies that ain't never had shit. Give away a few Mercedes like, here, lady, have this. And last but not least, grant somebody their last wish. It's been a couple months that I've been single, so you can call me Travi Claus, minus the ho ho. <laughs> Get it? I'd probably visit with Katrina here and damn sure do a lot more than FEMA did. Yeah. Can't forget about me, stupid. Everywhere I go, I'ma have my own theme music. Every time I close my eyes. Well, that was a taste of Bruno Mars singing Billionaire. And we're back with Raj Kumar. He's president and editor-in-chief of DevX and author of Business, The Business of Changing the World, How Billionaires, Tech Disruptors, and, and Social Entrepreneurs are Transforming the Global Aid Industry. And before the break, we were talking about what billionaires can and cannot do and what we need to do as individuals to try and make the aid business uh, that much better. Um, one of, well, I wanted to ask you, you, you talked about the different kinds of issues that the aid industry is uh, confronting these days. And I, I was wondering, um, you know, what are the priority development disruptions that you see are needed today to make aid more effective? I mean, the, the big picture, and I, it's kind of the theme through my book, is the idea that aid has come from a place of good intentions. If you look historically, charity has been around for millennia, and you know, poverty has too, and, and there's been a sense that, oh, we give away money, and I'm very generous, I feel good about that, and, and that sense is kind of embedded even in the biggest development and aid institutions that are out there today. And I'm, I'm saying that what I see happening now is a disruption that's pretty fundamental where the idea of charity itself is going away. The idea that this is about me, the giver, and, and feeling generous is starting to go away. And we're getting toward a competition for good results where nobody praises you for giving the money. They praise you for actually achieving something. And actually, if you don't achieve something, there's some accountability there. So I think that's the kind of most important underlying shift or disruption that's happening in our field. And you see it in examples where there are large-scale projects or donations that fail and that we ought to be able to have a conversation about those failures and, and be open about it and say, hey, that was a failure. And then we see it in places where really interesting, innovative, small-scale, often community-led approaches on the ground that, that people in their own community are, are doing really work and are highly cost-effective, right? And so I think we're getting into that level of disruption where we have a metric we're driving against, and that metric is not money, not how much did you give, it's what did you achieve. Right. Um, and, you know, I think poverty is this thing that sounds so hard to kind of process, right, in, in a, a world with so much abundance. But we are still living in a moment in human history where people are poor enough that they literally think about and do give their children away, you know, children are getting, you know, sold into trafficking or sold into domestic labor, even today in 2019, by the many millions. And that happens because people are so desperately poor. And so, you know, the idea that we would have this big industry designed to address those kinds of issues and that we wouldn't be succeeding, that we wouldn't be as efficient as we could be, you know, there are real lives at stake in this. So, you know, hopefully that's kind of a call to action around getting this right. Right. But what do you, I mean, what do you, I mean, in the context of the intergovernmental panel on climate change and its warnings to 2030, 
You know, that's the, mm -hmm. that's the, that's the, the line in the sand, so to speak. I mean, why should we fix poverty? I mean, shouldn't we be just focusing on uh, climate maybe and to a lesser extent biodiversity? Because we don't fix those things. We're not even going to have, you know, good agriculture to feed ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think they're very well connected. Obviously, there are tension points. You could see ways where you can, like, hurt biodiversity in the short run in order to give people livelihoods, uh, where people are a little better off in the short run. You can see some of those tensions in the short run. But in the long run, this is one planet. We survive off of this planet. And biodiversity should be a benefit to people of income, not a hindrance. Right? So in general, as I look at what's happening around the efforts to fight poverty, it should be really connected to the efforts to stop a warming planet. And I think there are lots of good examples of that. One that I talk about in the book is around fishing in the Philippines. The Philippines is a place I, I spent a lot of time. And, you know, it's, a, it's an island country, a lot of islands actually, it's an archipelago, and people survive on fish. It's like more than half of the protein that people eat is fish. But, you know, the fish stocks are going down. They've been going down for like 60 years now. Um, and millions of people are fishermen or artisanal fishermen. So if you get a total collapse of the fish population there, it's existential for that country. That's right. a big country of 100 million people, right? So that is not like just an environmental question or just a poverty question. It's everything, right? And I think those things are very connected. Um, and you, know, you look at like how many people who are living in poverty, how they cook, the kinds of fuels that they use. And, uh, you know, the, once people get into the middle classes and they want a, a gas guzzling car or a motorcycle, <laughs> you know, th these things are really connected. Or so too we've got to fix them together. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. Too much, exactly. Too much animal protein and that takes up all the, yeah. you know, the land. And yeah. so we, we, these, these things are connected. We can't really separate them out. And we don't have to say, we don't have to pit them against each other and sort of say, no. well, it's prioritize the planet and therefore, you know, forget about the poor people. It really yeah. is one issue. Yeah, and there's also, I mean, if we look at the longer picture, as you as you mentioned, it, it, there's a strong correlation between um, between uh, rising income and uh, lower uh, populations, uh, or smaller populations. As people That's get right. better off, they have fewer children, essentially. Um, but one of the things I, I thought was a neat example that kind of brings some of these ideas together uh, are some examples of social enterprise. I wanted you to tell us a little bit more about Hello Tractor, which is an Uber-like app for farmers in Nigeria. Yeah, no, happy to do that. You know, it's kind of crazy when you, you travel around. I know you were just in India. Uh, you travel to countries where there's still people doing farming the old fashioned way. And you know, when I say the old fashioned way, I mean the way humans have done it for 10,000 years, right? right. Um, and I see this all the time, people out there with hand tools, preparing fields for planting and harvesting. And it turns out it takes like 40 days to prepare a field for planting, 40 days of backbreaking work. Often it's, you know, mothers with their kids out there doing the work. Um, and if you have a tractor, it takes eight hours. <laughs> so it's pretty. It's a pretty dramatic difference, right? Kids can right. be in school. People can be doing other productive work. But the tractor was invented in 1792, and yet it's still, you know, I mean, the, the early the early versions of this. It's like a 200 year old invention, right? And we are still, nonetheless, um, in many places, looking at tractors like they are luxury items. Right. And so, you know, a young man had a had a really smart idea, and he went to Nigeria, and he said. You know, few people can afford these things. Those who have them, they're just sitting there idle. They don't use them all the time. Let's do like an Uber-style app. People <laughs> share the tractor. And, 
and it's taken off. And now 75% of the tractors coming into Nigeria are using Hello Tractor technology. And they've expanded to five markets around Africa. And it's just exploding. And it makes uh, all the sense in the world. It's a great example where if you have that social entrepreneurship mindset, yeah. if you can use the growing ubiquity of internet, connectivity, cell phone coverage, you know, big data and AI and all this, if you can use it and you have a, a focus on people who really do need resources, in this case, you know, smallholder farmers are often living in extreme poverty, earning you know, a couple dollars a day, if that, yeah. you can really transform their lives and, and build a sustainable social enterprise at the same time. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic thing. I think it, we saw a lot of uh, similar examples uh, on my last trip. I was in Vietnam and India, where people where they get a little bit of free time and they often start their own little side business or do something else that just provides them, you know, alternative income, which uh, decreases their economic risk, but also uh, you know increases their income. So it's it's a fantastic idea. There's a lot of stuff behind a Hello Tractor, and I think people should. They want to take a look at it. Uh, you can find it online, and it's a really good example of how social enterprise, you know, can be disruptive in a very, very great way. Um, and you get all those great things. One thing I wanted, a last thing I wanted to ask you, Raj. Uh, I read somewhere in some things that you were writing, and something that really resonates with a lot of people, including myself, is how uh, you wrote: How can we use our vote, our voice, and our wallets? to turn well-intentioned charity into effective advocacy to transform the world for good. Now, I would, I would argue this applies to creating a sustainable economy generally. That's what we're about here. Um, but I'm very interested in, in, in specifically, because we're coming to 2020, you know, what are you looking for in candidates uh, for the U.S. election uh, in terms of your work in aid? You know, I think we have a, a kind of dangerous theme that has developed in a lot of the richest countries in the world around aid. And that theme is that, well, we're the good, generous people and you know, we're giving this money, but we're only giving it for the short run because in the long run, we want these countries to be self-sustaining. Um, and so there's a little bit of tough love here. And I think it's just kind of ahistorical. You know, it doesn't recognize the legacy of colonialism and how deep the divides are in the world. Countries that are living on a dollar a day, they're not going to suddenly turn into Switzerland overnight. Now, this is going to be a generational challenge to get people out of poverty to improve health systems and education outcomes. We need to be at this for a long, long time. And what I'd like to see as voters is that we kind of open our eyes to this and say, you know what, we want that. You know, it's not that we think our aid agencies are all perfect, but we will vote in support of global health and global education and funding things that we know work in poor countries. And we care about that. We want that to be a voting issue. And I think we need more of that. It can't just be about doing aid for national security or doing aid to open markets or doing aid to fight China in a big economic competition. We gotta be doing this in part at least because this is the right thing to do for the future planet and humanity that we wanna have. Um, and I think voters, you know, you don't need to be a huge voting block, but even if we have a voting block in places like the U.S. and in the U.K. who can come out and vote on this issue, it can make a really big difference. Right. Well, it seems that people should read your book, The Business of Changing the World, How Billionaires, Tech Disruptors and Social Entrepreneurs Are Transforming, transforming the Global Aid Industry because it unpacks all these different conversations about what social enterprises can do, like Hello Tractor, what big foundations can and cannot do and how it seems to be, Raj, 
that things are changing so that it is becoming a competition for better and greater ideas. So thank you so much for all that you have done, Raj and DevX as well. Uh, and we look forward to seeing more things from you in the future. Thank you, Mark. I, I really appreciate this. And uh, it, this is an important moment, you know? This is a time that we all need to kind of sit up and pay attention. I think people generations from now will look back uh, on this time in human history and say, what did they do? I mean, <laughs> the climate was shifting. What did they do when you had such unbelievable wealth inequality? And, you know, we can do things. There, there are things that we know work. I try in the book to highlight some of the things you may have heard of and some that might be pretty surprising about what's going on today in this space. So um, I really appreciate the, the interest in this. Well, um, for anybody that's interested Raj, uh, in Raj's book, you can get it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, amongst other places. You can uh, track what Raj is thinking on Twitter at Raj underscore DevX, or you can check out DevX.com. So thanks again, Raj. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out the Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.